Welcome to Country Stride, episode number eight. Country Stride is the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, heritage and people of Cumbria. I'm here today in Grisdale with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Morning, Mark. (laughs) Morning, David. Great to be here in the breeze. A breezy, slightly grey day, although clearing up a little bit. And it's our first podcast, Mark, since our our Christmas special. Uh, Belated Happy New Year to you. Did you make any New Year's resolutions, Mark? Oh, yes. Mine was to keep fit, keep going, uh, believe in tomorrow. (laughs) Keep going as a general thing. That sounds (laughs) fun. And have you been doing lots of uh, New Year's walking? Yes, oh, I don't know where I'd be without walking. It regenerates one's belief in life. Uh, you get out and about, and, uh, well, we are so blessed to be in, in, in Cumbria. And the Lake District, we're having a special day today. We're climbing a mountain. Fantastic. And talk us through who our guest is today, Mark, and also what route we've got planned. Well, we've got the very man himself who has devoted himself to the whole process of creating majestic films on the Cumbrian mountains. We've got Terry Abraham, uh, somebody who I have a tremendous admiration for. Uh, Even if he is close by me at this very moment, I will say that too. Uh, (laughs) He's a a great man uh, and who has devoted himself to the creation of some uh, amazing films. Terry's first film, Life of a Mountain, Scarfell Pike, came out in 2014. Uh, I remember seeing it on the BBC at the time and being blown away, not only by the photography, but also that that somebody had given that amount of devotion to the lakes and to a place that I love as much as you do as well. Mm. And if you remember in our uh, last podcast, uh, Dorothy Wordsworth climbed Scorfeld Pike and uh, her brother did a piece about it. Um, and. It meant something way back then, Mm. and it still does to this day. Mm. And Terry's filming is a wonderful expression of it. So what route specifically have you got planned for us today, Mark? Well, I'm starting in Patterdale, and we're going up Grisdale initially, and then we're branching up over over Grisdale Beck and up onto the traditional route to Striding Edge, up to what's famously being known as the Hole in the Wall. Mm. I don't know if we'll get any further today, but... Principally, we're talking to Terry about the whole magic and scale of the mountain. And uh, we'll probably backtrack over Burkhouse Moor. Fantastic. Let's go. Terry, we've made it up onto the first stretch of the valley. There's a flock of swaledells or swaddles being fed down there. Aye. You've got a great view here. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. Some nice light about a minute, actually. It's making me think, hmm, might have to get the bloody cameras out. But, <laughs> Can't um, be having that. No, well, it's, it's quite a bit of clag about today. I'm intrigued by your passion for mountains. What drew you in the first instance? Yeah, well, I mean, I grew up in the country. My grandfather had a very profound influence on my life with him having a farm and having some woodland as well. I used to go beating and go out on shoots with him and he'd take me bushcrafting and spending nights out in the woods. So that sort of connection with the landscape's always been there for me. Um, my grandmother, she had um, a profound influence on me as well because she had a love for history and heritage and culture and people. And so she'd often take me to museums and whatnot and force feed me to read encyclopedias so I'm a bit of a brain box of things like that I'm handy in a pub quiz <laughs> but um, so I think you know you combine those two things and that's what led me to come up with the idea of doing the life of a mountain documentaries you know Quite. sharing that interest and passion with places and people and all the connections in between my grandparents sadly died when I was doing my A-levels and Looking back in retrospect, I went through a phase of depression from that. It really got me quite down and I lost my way a bit, so I never went to do further education or anything. Um, I, I mean, it's in all modesty, I was academically bright, you know, I excelled at school and things. Mm. 
and in sports and what have you. And uh, just basically bummed around my 20s, drinking beer and chasing women, if you like. And mm. um, You know all the women, I gather, but you're very good at beer. Well, yeah, that's it. We'd better make that noted now, since yeah, I'm wait, a married wait. man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, more important, that people know you as being an appreciative drinker. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I like my real ale. And again, that's a reflection, I suppose, of my interest with people and places. Because, you know, one of the things I love about Cumbria is the rich variety of... Uh, the ale you get here with all the microbreweries and the lovely old pubs, you know, mm. they're still the beating hearts of the community here. Even though for some visitors it may not seem that way at times in the high season because it's overwhelming tourists instead. But, you know, that connection, that sort of theme is it's just there in me. And yeah, so it's basically a health scare I had in my late 20s. Met my wife, it reignited my passion for the Lake District, having come here for the first time when I was 13. And, um, sort of got passionate taking a camcorder out with me on wild camps and stuff and built quite a following online through that and then I got made redundant and I thought Do you know what I'm going to give this video malarkey a go full time and I'm not professionally trained you know I've always had an interest in film and video and obviously the outdoors but um, it's been a learning curve since but I've not looked back, you know. Christ, I've really changed not. this for the world now. Clearly not. And, and Sue, your wife, has been a, a great bulwark to you. And she, you say she had a, a passion for the Lake District. Yeah, 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 she does. But not, not in the same way as me, oh, perhaps. You know, yeah. I like to spend nights out in the fells. She wants to spend a night at home in bed after being out in amongst <laughs> the fells, you know, that kind well, of thing. I often joke I'm a wild camper first and foremost and then a, you know, a filmmaker and photographer second and third. And for me, there's no better way than enjoying these landscapes, the beautiful fells of Lakeland, by spending so much time out amongst them. Um, and that includes wild camping. Some people might find me a bit of a lunatic at times when I do it in the heights of winter during storms and stuff, but I, I like that. It makes you feel alive. It gives you a real sense of appreciation of your place in the world, the landscape, all, all those things. I'm a practicing atheist, to be honest with you, Mark, mm. but I can acknowledge now, as the last few years have gone by with me working on these documentaries, that. There's no denying I'm probably a bit of a spiritualist, you know? Absolutely. I have a spiritual connection yeah. with these places. I care passionately about these places and like to share the, the drama, the scenes, the people I meet and so on and so forth through the documentaries and hopefully give them a, a greater appreciation of the area because it's not just about hill bagging, ticking off hills and being out on the summits. You know, some of the best views can be found on the, you know, the lesser height summits, if you like. Um, and it's about the people, the culture and the heritage, you know. Off the mic earlier, we were talking about Cumbrian dialect, for example, and how it's dying out. And if people were more aware of things like that, when they do visit, they'd care more because it's something more in their head, if you like, through the documentaries. They'll seek out these things and try and support Cumbrian dialect society, for example, and all the other things with, to do with farming and so on and so forth and the history of the area. This connection with people is a very visceral one. I think we've got a visceral climb ahead of us. It's <laughs> not that hard a climb. Oh, know. that's what I like to hear. A man who instinctively wants to climb but, a hill. I can see and appreciate why people might think that at times, but, you know, as you'll appreciate, it's... It's familiar to us. It's, we're just going out amongst friends. It excites me. I want to get up there closer. Well, we'll go and have a wander. We'll do that now. All right. Great moment here. You get our first really open view, Terry. To Sutundi Crag, it really looms high here. And you see the farm below mm. and the last of the trees running up the valley up Grisdale Aye. with Dolly Wagon Pike and Leathermost Pike and Hard Edge. Hard Edge by Hard Tarn, yeah. Grisdale, yeah. The, is it the Valley of the Boars? Well, that's Something it. Like the, that. the Valley of the Young Pigs. The young Pigs, there you go. Yeah. Pause to think about your first thoughts when you embarked on Scorfield Pike as a film. What sort of parameters did you give yourself? Um, I basically just made it up as I went along. There was an emotive side to it. There was a plan on that front. You know, I was born out of frustration, really, with, you know, you see these spectacular programmes of places around the world, but you never really saw anything like that of the UK at the time, and to a large extent, you don't now. I mean, don't get me wrong, they look nice on camera and stuff, but as a backpacker and a wild camper, you know, being out in all seasons and weathers on the top, I get to see sights a lot of those camera crews don't. And, um, you know, because they're on an hourly rate or daily rate. So I thought, well, I want to create something that's visually spectacular. 
about, for me, you know, one of my favorite areas, if not favorite area of the lakes, and that's the Scorfells. But I also wanted it to be about the people that work there, live there, visit it, care for it, and all that kind of thing, because it, it all matters. They're all interconnected. And I didn't want a narrator, because my angle was that the people, the mountain, seeing it all change through the seasons in one documentary would tell the story. You met the farmers and the people in the community, and you realise they didn't actually have a voice in most of these films. These films are planned in a studio in some far-flung place. I mean, when I finished the documentary, a lot of people came up to be saying similar things and describing that what I captured with Life of Matt in for Pike is it's essentially a time capsule of the area, like those old pate films. And, and I found that deeply humbling, and as, as well as the emotional connection people felt towards it, because I'm so heavily engrossed in what I'm doing, and be it the beautiful sunrises and stuff I'm capturing or inversions, but even the people I'm getting to know and getting them to shine on camera and just be authentic and natural. Nothing's, nothing's ever scripted. Um, that, that connection, just I think it just shone through. How did you start utilising your time in the fells most effectively? Well, I often joke, I'm glad there's not a council tax ban for wild camping because I'd be bloody behind bars now because <laughs> I spent so many nights out on the fells. Quite. Um, I was practically living on the fells doing score for pipe particularly because it is a much more remote and quieter area. You know, it's not, not so accessible as other fells I've worked on here in the Lake District. I mean, I'd be going out with little money. You know, I'd be sleeping in beer gardens sometimes, uh, knocking on doors of farmers I got to know in the area, and they let me camp on their fields hidden behind a wall, so be out of sight of the public. If I got a signal, my wife, I'd arrange with my wife food deliveries with one of the supermarkets, and they'd uh, deliver that to Wasdale Head, bless them, and then I'd be there after a few days to refresh myself in a shower and whatnot, and then stock up on my food and back out on the fells for a few nights. It was hard. I mean, much of the day, ironically, I won't won't be filming. It's it's the golden hours I'm always looking for. It's dawn and dusk. But, you know, it depends on the season and the, and the weather. You know, days like today, for example, the, the clouds breaking up a bit. So you're getting that god light, I like to call it, you know, the, the crepuscular rays that are breaking through the cloud. Mm. Adds the drama, the ambience to landscape. And as you know, this is what... The weather tends to be like in the yes, industry. It's not all about blue skies and sunshine. I'm not interested in that. No, quite. I am in winter because yes. the sun's a lot lower down in the sky, not mm -hmm. so high up as it is in the summer. So it really brings the contrast down the landscape and, of course, the snow as well. So most of the day, I wouldn't be doing very much at all, just walking from point B to C, D, and so on and so forth. Don't bother with A. Well, I forgot about A. <laughs> <laughs> I was just plonked there in a helicopter, but <laughs> I wish. But no, it is hard work. It's physically very demanding. I suppose it's like a long distance runner, fell runners or marathon runners. They, they set goals yep. to get to the finish line. That's how I treat every day when I'm out Fine. on the fells. You know, particularly when I'm lugging 50, 60, 70 kilos on my back. But it really intrigues me when the idea enveloped you and you realized that what you had in your hands was something that actually would have wider appreciation. Um, after the premiere, oh, um, yes. which was a full house, and for want of better words, I was mobbed like the Beatles afterwards, and it did make me rather emotional at the time. I'm not one to wear my heart on my sleeve, but I did well up a little bit. Mm. Um, and it still gets to me now when I think back, because the memory's still very vivid and fresh in my mind, but I was blown away by the response. I couldn't believe People of all ages and backgrounds loved it. And that was just the full two-hour version. Um, and it was some months later that the BBC got in touch with me, and I can't remember how, or how they found me or knew about it. Um, but I had to cut that down to an hour, and I hated it. Oh, I didn't like it, and I thought, no one's going to watch it, so I kept quiet about it. Didn't <laughs> tell anybody it was going on the telly. <laughs> and then the weekend before it aired, suddenly I had friends and followers and fans on social media suddenly sending me these pictures of these fantastic reviews in the national press about the documentary and I was like bloody hell they like it what the hell do I know and, and it was a huge hit you know and it's been seen by a million since and those two occasions really were life-changing for me on, on many levels anyway we'll give ourselves a few more feet yeah let's crack on The sun has been dancing over the shoulder of Burks 
which is to the left of St. Sunday Crag, and it's dancing down into the valley, down at Patterdale, and constant moving like the head of the valley, ahead of Grinsdale, is still quite moody. It's a bit grim. A bit yeah. grim. Um, I, I'm intrigued, Terry, about the evolution of your kit. First of all, the camping equipment, because that would have been pretty rudimentary when you started. Yeah, not really. I use a lot of the same kit as I did then on the first one, to be honest. It's just the usual expensive, some of it, you know, high-end uh, backpacking kit. So it packs lights. I've got several tents for different <laughs> conditions and seasons. So if I know I'm likely to encounter a, a severe storm, so I'm, I'm talking 60 mile an hour winds plus, um, then I'll take what I call one of my bomber tents, but they're bulky and heavy. Mm -hmm. So I don't like carrying them about, but then I, I like being in them in those conditions. Quite. Where the other tents, you know, they might be like single hoop tents, tunnel tents. They're a bit lighter, they pack smaller. And you can go out in moderate storms with that. But, you know, obviously it's a lot less bulk and weight to carry. Because you have to get up crack of dawn when, when you're out there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I tend to camp where I want to film. I try to at least, or at least not more than 10, 15 minutes away from a, a position I want to be on the fell. Mm. But obviously I have to think about where I'm camping, you know, what's the ground like? Is there going to be water nearby? Because I don't take water up the fells. Though I do joke, I take beer up the fells. Because <laughs> I like a pint at the end of the day's walk, you know, and I thought if I can't be at the pub, I'll bring the pub with me. <laughs> but, you know, it's a good morale boost as well on particularly grim days when the weather's a bit gnarly and whatnot. Mm. And a cooking stove, you know, yes. small and light. I just tend to boil water and mix that yes. with food. Yes. I don't buy your backpacking food or anything. That might shock a few backpackers out there because it, I find them tasteless and a rip-off. There's no nutritional value to them. I buy my own from the supermarket. I had a not. delicious tuna steak on a camp the other night. <laughs> tuna steak, foil packed. I won't say the brand. Costs less than two quid. And I got some uh, three-minute ready rice and I got some dried vegetables. Cost me less than four quid. Wow. Just that nice and light and a very filling, nutritious meal. There Amazing. you go. Now, you started filming with what sort of equipment? It was, well, it was just a regular cheap um, ENG camera they call them electronic news gathering so it's very simple to use your point you shoot and off you go i mean it was almost broadcast quality the video but i didn't know any of this was going to go on the television or anything you know <laughs> well um, i never will will it no nah. but you know i'm, I'm dead serious so i, I yeah. hadn't a clue and um because ultimately i was doing it for me and hopefully people might watch it on dvd and things mm. um but I've not used that camera again since because <laughs> after the success of Skillful Pike and then I started on Blencathra and so on, then I upgraded my kit. Yeah. But even so, for a lot of filmmakers out there, I suppose it would still surprise them on the kit that I use now because mm -hmm. it's not necessarily high mega end. expensive high-end kit. I just want the tools that do the job for me. But I do admittedly have a few cameras because mm -hmm. They all have specific strengths for different scenarios, different conditions, and so on and so forth. Because it seems like a rising crescendo of success in this series <laughs> that hopefully will pay for the cameras. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's the idea. That's the idea. I mean, the most I've actually spent on a video camera, and it's not a DSLR. I don't tend to film on them because the quality is not as good as a proper video camera. Um, I think it was about four and a half grand, mm -hmm. and that's cheap in yeah. media terms you know you're looking at 10 grand plus normally but that'll do me it yeah. does the job and it gives me broadcast quality video but it has its limitations but it is small and light and that's mm. what i like about it yeah. i do film with one dslr admittedly it's a but it is aimed at video enthusiasts and the video quality on that is very very good mm. but it's crap for everything else mm. so i don't mind using that camera occasionally and again that's very small and light mm. but then there's the lenses and People often say in this game that the cameras are expensive to purchase initially and then that's it. You never get your money back from them again because they lose half their value straight away. It's the lenses that really cost an arm and a leg. They and they do hold their value, they you do. know, because it's yeah. that beautiful you glass. <laughs> well, yeah, there is that. And touch wood, and I'm touching my skull here. <laughs> yeah. I've not dropped a lens no. or anything. You're very, you're very stable. <laughs> I, I try to be. Uh, that's why you only have one can on the fell. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we'll walk a bit further in here, Terry. Okay. Gosh, we've come up to a lovely little spot here, Terry. You see above the trees now, in the upper part of Grisdale, and the wild corrors, the nethermost cove. 
which hugs up to the right. Furthest and most cove, is it? Is that what it means? It's, it a, it's the nearest of the furthest coves. Oh, that's it. It's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. It's the nearest of the furthest yeah. coves. Yeah. And then you've got Ruthwaite, which is rough cove. Yeah. Uh, rough clearing, actually. Yeah. Beautiful uh, names, aren't they? And Cock Cove, which is where to do the birds. Dolly Wagon Pike, yeah. obviously got Viking origins. Doll of Egan. It's not a dolly wagon, it's dull of Egan, uh, which is the elevated giant or the raised head of the giant. Mm, so it's, mm. it's got a distinctive, it's like nethermost has got this as nearest, furthest cove and all that. You did Scorfield Pike and then you moved on and you're thinking uh, Catherine and then Helvellyn. How did you bring that idea together in your mind? I, I always envisaged it as being a trilogy, but right. admittedly, Originally, I was going to do Scorfield Pipe, Ben Nevis and Snowden. Right. But given my love yep. for the area, um, you know, Cumbrian at large, let alone the Lake District, I thought, you know, in a roundabout way, as much as it nearly physically and mentally killed me doing Scorfield Pike, by that point, I was a bit more relaxed and recovered, and I thought, I want to stay in Cumbria. Mm. You know, it's where I ultimately, at the time, wanted to live one day. So I thought I'll do a trilogy of Lakeland Mountains. So it's, thought, rather, it's rather like our country stride, where we feel... A very strong identity with Cumbria. You have the same thing. Yeah, it is. Um, I, I can't explain why. Mm. Maybe it's a spiritual thing. I don't know. Maybe I was born a shepherd here in a previous life. I mm. don't know. Or even a Herdwick, even. But I thought, you know, Scorfells was really rather dramatic and remote. And that's out west. So I thought, maybe I'll go north and east. And mm. I've always had my eye on Helvellyn, admittedly. Mm. That was always going to be in the trilogy. Because it's a favourite fellow of mine. And it's the first big one I ever did as a young boy. So I thought I'd do Helvellyn next, and then I'd finish with probably Blencathra Skidder. Mm. But having spoken with uh, Eric Robson, who's a oh, good friend the, of mine, he, yeah, he suggested man. at the time, yeah. no, do Blencathra. I don't think you really appreciate how loved that fell is, mm. um, how topical it was at the time with it being on the market up for sale. And uh, maybe you should leave Helvellyn because it's more personal to you yes. as a favourite fell for the last one in your you know, your trilogy. Eric was absolutely bang on the nail there. And, and because you were evolving the whole idea from Scorfell Pike, Blencathra became a different kind of film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was more ambitious on the technical side of things, of course. I wanted aerial shots and what. Though I did have close acquaintances and friends say, don't bother with that. What's great about what you've done, it's all at the ground level, what we can all see. And I'm going, yeah, but you've not seen what I'd like to do with aerial shots. It's not going to be the usual stuff. I wanted spectacular stuff at dawn and dusk and in winter and all that kind of thing, um, which I think kind of achieved, you know. Mm. They're not perfect, these films, of course, and I'm always learning. Mm. But um, it, it's a different fell. It's a different area. It's got a different ambience, a feel to it. And admittedly, initially, I was rather indifferent to Blencathra. For me, the most exciting parts of Blencathra were Hallsfell Ridge and Sharp Edge. It's a mountain with a front and almost no back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very, very true. But that transpires. Some of my favourite bits about Blencathra are out the back yes. and not so much at the front. Absolutely. It's great to look at at Isn't the front, you know. Yes. So it's good on that front with the camera. But because it's more contained, a smaller area, it was much more challenging to capture on camera in different ways throughout the seasons, throughout the documentary. There are loads of places you can explore on Blencathra and you won't see anybody for hours, <laughs> if not the whole day, until you get to the top. Yes. Because I suppose instinctively, because of the ridge lines, people just go up to the top onto the they plateau do. itself but and do sharp edge and so on and so forth, but they don't tend to explore the gills and the other no. ridges that come down. Yeah. So they're wonderful places to explore. They I mean, are. a favourite of mine is Bleasfell. Um, you can wander about all over on there and you yes. get, get right intimate with the crags and the, the faces of yeah, the mountain. no crag, is it called? And yeah, so, on. Yeah. so, Terry, I'm intrigued by this thought that you hit it off with the first film. You want to hit it off with the second one. It's like a number one hit. Mm. You want to make another number one hit. How are you going to do that? Well, I was acutely aware of the old second album trick. Is it one hit, one to score for Pike, or can <laughs> I better it? I always thought it's not, I don't think it will be better. I thought it, it'd be equal on its own terms. So you could watch the two side by side and appreciate their different areas. But there were lots and lots of ideas I had for Skillful Pike that time and money and equipment and so forth wouldn't enable or allow me to execute those ideas. 
but thankfully from the success of Scuffle Pike, I did mm. in Blaine Caffra. The, the songs, for example, the two songs that feature in the film and Phil with his beautiful poem about the mountain and, yeah. and all that kind of thing and, and a bit more humour, I thought, so hence with Stuart McConey and Ed Byrne and <laughs> yes. David Powell Thompson on Sharp Edge. I wanted to put a bit of a twist on things. You did, and they were brilliant. They yeah. really were good. I mean, I did, I did joke with people thinking that this might be my Godfather part two, so the final one would be a load of rubbish, you know. <laughs> but I did take a, a bit of a break from working on the series. Um, I'm confident now that's not going to happen, you know. <laughs> Elvelling will be the big one. This, <laughs> this is the one that ties it all together and Fabulous. ends it on a big high. Yeah. Okay, we'll go a bit higher now ourselves. Yeah, let's get a closer look at Elvelling. Great moment to just pause a moment, Terry, and just look back. It's, we've just come through another gate. It's probably a last gate before we get up to the a hole yacht. in the wall. Yep. A yacht, yep. indeed. And look back to see uh, Placefell, which to me is the most magic place to be because mm. not only you get a great view on the Oldswater and Patterdale, but really a fabulous view on Helvellyn itself. You do. And over the left-hand shoulder, we just got high enough now just to see Crossfell, the paternal mountain above the Eden Valley. You chose to live in the Eden Valley. Yeah, I managed to fulfil a lifelong dream uh, of living in Cumbria. People might think I'd like to live within the lakes, but despite my work and successes and the perhaps perceptions people may have, I'm not loaded. <laughs> and I'm not being funny. I, I love living in the Eden Valley. It's got the perfect blend of that strong sense of community that I've always associated within Lakeland itself and working on Blancatra and Skullful Pike because, you know, it's not just about the landscapes, it's about the people. Mm. You know, it's something I've always been bagging on about in the documentaries. So, you know, Eden by name, Eden by nature as far as I'm concerned. It's, now, when you started Blancatra, there was talk about the Lowther Estate selling it and there was a, a Friends of Blancatra formed uh, to perhaps raise the sufficient funds to buy the mountain because people felt it was their mountain. Mm, indeed, yeah. I find, in general, the communities are like that about any bloody fell they live by here in the Lake District, you know. Wasdale residents and Nestdale residents and will feel just the same about the Scorefell, Scorefell Pike and Scorefell and so on. And um, as I'm sure with people in the Eden Valley, they'll feel the same about Crossfell and Great Dunfell and that, you know, that huge escarpment of high ground of the North Pennines, just as people here in Patterdale and Glenridding will about Helvellyn. The landscape, the environment shapes you. It does. And how you feel. You know, you dress like Bowser the Clown, you act like Bowser the Clown. Mm. Live somewhere like this or close to somewhere like this and it, it does affect you. It, it does. You. I mean, I, just recently I've been told... I'm an honorary Cumbrian now. I'm a Cumbrian now, even though I'm an off-comer, you know? I'm a, I'm a Knots lad. And that's nice. It's heartwarming. But I'll never be a Cumbrian. No, you know what no, I mean? of course not. But it has <laughs> changed me. It has changed me. I'm much more laid back about things in life now. I'm not in such a great rush to get things done. I'll be like, yeah, I'll get it done. It'll be done tomorrow. Yeah. Tomorrow actually means about a week or two later or whatever. <laughs> Um, so you're lucky again today because yeah. I said, ah, oh, yeah, next week will be all right. <laughs> In my mind, it was probably next month. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, it does affect you and I, and I love all that. It, yeah. it just it shows through and it's there in the place names and everything else. So. It intrigues me, like Threlkeld there, you, you said in the film that there are people who live in Threlkeld who have never been up Blencastle. Yeah. yeah I've, I've, do you know, working on the documentaries, that, that surprised me at times, but then it hasn't at others, that you do get quite a lot of born and bred locals, the natives, shall I say, who've never set a foot on the fells, you know. <laughs> but, hey, they feel protective about them. Absolutely. They love them. They know yes. they're there. They, they, they feel for them. They, they're know? embraced by them and yeah. it's part of their identity. And yeah. a, a landscape gives you your personality and your voice and, yeah. and, and your That's sense of connection. It's an attachment. It is. That's one of my terms. It's a hardy it. landscape. You know, the weather's always changing. Goodness knows we've seen how harsh it can be at times with the likes of Storm Desmond and mm. Beast from the East last year. I mean, that, that affected where I, I live in the Eden Valley, but not as bad as many others, thankfully, um, for the poor people that were severely affected and snowed in. And I think that shapes their character, yeah. their I, attitude to life. You know, it's that no-nonsense, down-to-earth stuff. Mm. And I'm, I'm very much like that in myself as a person, as you know. 
I was going to pick you up today and uh, I, I went to the post office in your village and they said, oh, that's where Terry lives, isn't it? I said, oh, yeah. He obviously has been assimilated into the village already. <laughs> I'm much more aware of all that kind of thing now mm. after mm. the other two documentaries. Um, and I appreciate the effect the documentaries have on the communities. And the most obvious one, I suppose, is visitor numbers. You know, this place I've been to, inns and stuff I've frequented in the past, and locals wind up going, oh, I can't bloody get family to book a room here anymore because of your bloody film. Oh, good film, by the way. And I'm like, cheers, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Don't know what to make of that. I, I just, uh, I was speaking earlier to a church warden down at Paddedale there, uh, and they knew about your film. <laughs> I oh, thought, that's nice. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> yeah. My guidebooks are read by about six people. <laughs> I'm sure it's more than that. Well, seven. But your films really touch people. I know, it's nice. I just don't see it that way. I, I can't describe it, Mark. I, I just, I'm just Terry, that's it. You're a Patterdale Terry. Uh. Sometimes, admittedly, I've been in shops and whatnot and I've gone, you know, I'm doing this and I'm doing that just in chit-chat and my name's Terry Abraham being polite and introducing myself and they go we know who you are and I'm like all right cheers so I don't have to I can dispense with the pleasantries now can I <laughs> well go and pleasantry a bit higher I want to get to see the hole in the wall anyway yeah yeah brilliant <laughs> let's go well we made it to hole in the wall Terry it's a bit of a draft today it's actually quite chilly we're sheltering a little bit behind the wall uh we can just see high spying how and striding edge now how only to you uh, when you were young it was important yeah yeah well it was actually um a friend's family took me up here on holiday for the first time right yeah and uh stayed at the youth hostel in Patterdale and did a few courses during the week with the out of bound lot and um yeah, it was, it was my epiphany, if you like. Suddenly, like, this is where I wanted to be. I absolutely loved it. I think I, think I was 13. Right, yes. And I got a very vivid memory of we went up uh, Fairfield mm -hmm. and I was looking at the view down. It was a grim day. and looking down the view that I could see of Windermere and suddenly the light break, breaking through the clouds and rolling along. And, um, and as a 13-year-old boy... I was sat on my Todd nearby, away from the others, and I shed a little tear at the Mesmerized. beauty I was looking yes. at, and I thought, why do we have all these troubles in the world when we've got such beauty here on our doorstep that just can change you? You can understand that. And then uh, I think it was the same week and tackled Helvellyn, and um, so you could say Helvellyn really was my big, first big one of the Lakeland Peaks, and it's stuck with me ever since. I think I did read somewhere not so long ago that it is the Lake District's most popular peak in terms of visitors that ascend it and go to the top and then back down. It's not too hard to believe on a hot no, summer's day anyway or not. a bank holiday weekend. And I think there's no coincidence, apart from the regular buses, that Wainwright chose this as his first book. Mm, mm. He actually personally came round with copies of the books down yeah. to the post office in yeah. Batterdale and, yeah. mm. and your choice of making it the last film because it's really like the great summation of what Fell walking is all about this one mountain. Yeah, I'm smiling because you're absolutely right. That's why I wanted it to be the last one, really. Because much of what I'm actually doing in the documentary is surmising everything about the Lake District. The experience of being in places like this, that sense of wilderness that you get, because it's not a true wilderness, you know. Of course, it's been shaped by a man over millennia and still is to a point, and obviously the weather as well. Mm. And it's, it's iconic. Mm. You know, with striding edge, swirl edge, and the views you get from the top, it's it's a very, very special mountain. But I have to say, having worked on the documentary now for just over a year, because I'm taking almost two years to produce, I think just over two years to produce Life of Mountain, Helvellyn, I can tell you it's not just Helvellyn, it's the whole range. It's yes. one big mountain, and where that's more apparent than anywhere else is when I've been up to like seven, ten thousand 10,000 feet in a microlight or an aeroplane filming aerial scenes. And it's not just El Valley, it's the whole big range, you know, mm. with Nevermost Pike and the Dodds and so mm. on. I think we should cut back along by the wall because it's a bit drafty behind us and uh, got onto Burkhouse more. Uh, I just mentioned that uh, just at the moment, although everywhere is covered in cloud shadow, if you look at Place Fell, Bordale Halls and Bederfell, not, it's all lit up brilliantly in golden light, yeah. and that is so magical. And that dark shadow around it, this, this 
is what I'm after on camera, which is why a few moments ago I had my video camera out and getting some shots because that to me optimizes the Lake District, the drama, it's the weather, not the blue, clear blue skies and sunny days because they're rare, really, as us locals know, anyway, at least, <laughs> yes, you know. And that, and that can look nice, it's lovely when you're out walking, but on camera, it looks boring and flat. It's the drama I like. That's that's, that's what really grabs me. I mean, it caught my eye straight away. That was it. Drop the pack and get the camera out. Because the uh, high street range beyond is in cloud shadow. Yeah. And so it throws into relief mm. that area there of Angle Tarn Pikes. Mm. really looks fabulous. Yeah, it's perfectly framed. Perfectly with the framed. Shadow, isn't it, it is, Lovely. yeah. You can see Mickle fell beyond in the distance, which is in County Durham. There you yeah. are. Not a bit York, of Cumbria Yorkshire's at all. former highest peak before <laughs> the boundary changes. Eh? They're always changing boundaries. Yeah. Anyway, off we go. Yeah. Well, they've modified this path coming down and improved it uh, radically. It used to come straight up by the wall, didn't it, mm. in the days gone by. Uh, we come down by a great slab of rock where the glacier went over. You can see the direction of the glacier, can't mm. you, by this? Mm. Uh, I can see beyond the lake, uh, Ullswater, the sun's still beaming on Penrith and uh, Great Mel Fell. Yeah, it's breaking up a bit that way, Break, the cloud, Breaking actually. up that way. Yeah. Below us, we can just see Glen Ridding. And uh, when we did our second podcast, we went to Sheffield Pipe. In the conversation there, we talked about the zip wire that was planned to go down the valley and they had a pole in the village and overwhelmingly, uh, the village did not want yeah. zip wire there. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there are zip wires around in the Lake District, but there was one that you got really passionate about. I mean, I'm not anti-zip wires. Like you say, there are zip wires about in the lakes anyway, you know, in the forests and stuff. Mm -hmm. But the one over Thilmere, and I say one, it was, I think, four. To me, was utterly wrong. It was in the wrong place, the wrong location. Um, and just ironic that they proposed these plans over the birthplace of the conservation movement as we know it today, because it was over Thilmere, which is a reservoir. Mm -hmm. There was a natural lake there. Yep. Um, and people may say, well, it's man-made what you see on the fells, but much of what we see now is not the same as it was 100 years ago or even mm. in Wordsworth's day. Yep. And just because the reservoir was built there at Thilmere now doesn't mean we should go, oh, well, well we can just stick anything else up there. Yeah. We should look at it as a, a memorial to the struggles people faced back then, and ironically, still happens now because, yeah. you know, the whole whole of the lakes is under a lot of pressure, with visitor numbers and stuff like that and holiday lets and so on, but this, this fashion, this uh, fascination for having big attractions like that, I just think defeats the object of what national parks are about. Don't get me wrong, I'm not one of these people that thinks that the lake should be preserved in aspect, you know, as a, some kind of living museum of what it was like at this moment in mm. time. It's always been in an evolving landscape. It and as I've change. inferred, you know, you, you see those lovely old photos of Ashness Bridge, for example, looking yeah. to Skidder. The old ones, you know, there's no trees there, or very, very little ones mm. at least. And now you, you're struggling to see Skidder and Keswick for the trees. Same with the Bowderstone in Borrowdale. Oh, yes. You see the old photos of that. There's no <laughs> trees at all in the view. And now it's surrounded by a forest. Yes. So, most of that is natural woodland, fortunately. Yeah, well, I've, I've always been a big believer um, that we shouldn't necessarily fight nature or try and control nature. We should work with nature, mm -hmm. much as they did in times gone by. You mm -hmm. know, like a lot of these slate floors you get in the old cottages where they're built on floodplains. Yes. You know, they weren't daft. They knew if there was a flood coming, we can tuck all our furniture up onto the upper floors. Yes. And because of that slate floor, we can just sweep the mud out when the flood's gone and we're done. You know, some of the threats and pressures places like the Lake District face now are because there is a disconnect now with, you know, the newer generations coming through with the lack of outdoor education at schools now and because of all sorts of stuff with compensation and all that kind of thing and fear of risk and stuff like that which you know if people reconnected with the outdoors and it's something i'm always trying to inspire them with mm. with the images i capture in the documentaries or just my photos on social media to inspire them this this is the adventure this is. is the beauty reconnect with it and you will care more about these places about and other it. things in the wider world uh, how on earth do we get our next generation who are the custodians of the future I think it's about communication through different media. I think 
the new generations coming through that appreciating these landscapes are kind of doing it for themselves already with the likes of social media posting pictures and photos. I've never seen so many young people out on the fells, to be honest with you, and I think that's a brilliant thing. And it's the more that they're out here, yeah, exactly. The more they're out here, the better, and sharing the wonderful views and the scenery. And hopefully, off the back of that, when they're older and they have children, they'll pass that on to them. And maybe, as parents, they'll pressure schools to push more about ad outdoor education into school curriculums and stuff because it's, it's important to mm. know about risks, risk-taking, having that adventure out in these places. You know, they talked about the zip wires that were proposed for filmmakers and it will inspire a new generation of people to get out on the fells. I'm like, what, for 60 quid and you're over and done with in a few minutes? You ferried up a fell in a truck in a large adult baby carrier to zip down a wire. <laughs> for 60 quid, you can go walking, scrambling, gill scrambling, wild camping, mm. mountain biking, paragliding. There's loads of things you can you do. Can That's the adventure and you, you appreciate the landscape more. You can take it by the scruff of the neck as it is and... Uh, uh, you can see uh, the excitement youngsters get when they get out. Uh, and when they get here and see it for the first time, they're rejuvenated. Coming down this mossy path beside the wall, I have a bit of fixation with this wall. It's covered in lichen, it's beautiful and very substantial. It hasn't got any bits that have fallen down and it leads straight down to Keldas. Fabulous little hill covered in conifers. In a sense, the inappropriate beautification of the Marshall family who had Patterdale Hall. So there's quite a deal of influence of this alpine romantic landscape. And I can look down towards Glenridding uh, in on the lake, which used to be called the Glenridding Hotel. Uh, and, uh, and you see the jetty of the steamers. So you get a great view here. Um, uh, it's just a, a lovely place to be because I'm, I'm off the regular path that people follow from Glen Ridding up by Mears Beck. Uh, so it's much quieter and, and now the bracken's down. It makes it easier to walk. Terry's just gone ahead of me so I better catch him up. Made it down to Lantis Tarn. Lancelot Marshall. He's the man who's venerated in the name <laughs> from Patterdale Hall. We've reached a lower point, or almost the bottom of our route today. Fabulous outing, and it's been a great honour to be with you, Terry. But um, in all those filmings you've done, was there one, one moment when you thought, this is really worth it? I've seen something outrageously good. One that immediately springs to mind was when um, I'd been out around the Scorefells for about four nights, I think, camping out. And I was up on the actual summit, um, not right by the cairn, because it's too rocky, I couldn't pitch a tent. But <laughs> near Pikes Crad, uh, there's a, nearby there's a bit of turfy green. ground and green, yeah, so I pitched there. Well, actually, no, I didn't pitch, I wasn't in a tent, I was in a bivvy bag, ah. thinking about it. And, um, and I woke up about three in the morning for a call of nature. And I looked out and I went, oh, bloody hell. And it was just a sea of cloud as far as the eye could see to all points of the compass. And I was really tired. I wanted a bit of a lie-in after a few nights out. And I was happy with some of the shots I got. And I thought, OK, let's go for it. So I got my cameras and everything, got to the summit again. And, um, yeah, just seeing the sun come up over Helvellyn, ironically, in the distance, and all these beautiful pinks and oranges and hues. And it was a Monday morning, I'll never forget, no one else there. Clearly. And I can remember taking a picture on my phone and sharing it on Twitter, going, I'm the highest man in England right now. <laughs> yeah. And there's, there's this view with a sea of cloud and the tops poking oh, out. Fabulous. That's a high point, and lots of high points. Uh, many really low points. Well, during a heat wave one year, I had a battery explode in my rucksack. I'm no, walking that... along thinking, is that a sonic boom or something? The RAF been naughty. And when I made me camp, I got him all my kit out and I noticed uh, a load of ash and smoke coming out <laughs> one of my dry sacks and I went the hell and looked inside and it's a bloody battery had exploded wow not had that happen since but the, the low points well it's usually to do with either the weather or carrying all the kit because often if I'm camping out as well as filming my rucksack I mean it's, it's 100 litres yeah it weighs about 60 70 kilos and 
and that can get me down at times yeah. and especially on a grim day in the weather because I just think what the hell am I doing here why am I doing this but then you know it could come a point in that day where I just get a magical window for 10-15 minutes and it's just all worth it well the first film Terry was I think released in 2014 I think yeah yeah that's right and you started that one a year before or so? Two years. Two years before. before. Mm. So we're talking 2012. Here we are, 2019. So 2020, this one will come out. So there's eight years of your life when your life has changed radically. Do you know what? Now you've put it that way, that's freaked me out a little bit. Eight years. It is. Um, yeah, a lot has changed, but I like to think I'm a humble, grounded person, so... With, you know, the success of the documentary stuff, I've not let it change me or affect me in any way. Uh, thank my family for that, you know. Mm. Gone by in a bit of a blur those eight years. Yes. It doesn't feel like eight years. When you said earlier on that uh, your education went a bit awry and you got depressed, uh, you sort of come out of the other side now. Yeah, you could say life has a funny way of bringing things full circle mm. and... And in a way, that's what I'm trying to do with the Hellvelling film, bringing the trilogy to a close. But I want to end it on a spectacular, emotive high. Yes. Well, I've got another year of that, yeah. Yeah, so well, quite. hopefully nothing happens to me in that year or absolutely. it won't get done. <laughs> no, no, so it almost begs the question, what next? Mm, I've no idea. I tend to, because I'm self-employed and everything and, um, and I've got to work with limited funds and what have you, because I often get asked, you know, what, what's your hourly rate? And I go, nothing. <laughs> the amount of hours I put into this, I, I don't even get them a anymore. Penny an hour I work probably on. Wouldn't, probably wouldn't even be that. But <laughs> I do it for the love of it, of course. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I tend to think about six months in advance what I might be doing the following year because mm. I have to think about my income and, you know, stuff like that. But at the moment, I've no idea. I've got ideas, what I'd like to do. Um, projects and things like that, but they'll definitely all be outdoor space and well, preferably here within Cumbria. Fabulous. Well, we need you here. We'll head off now and let's see if the pub's open. Hi. Come on, then. Journey's end in Patterdale and we're sheltering in the lee of the church here which was being lovingly looked after earlier on by the church warden and uh, a very, very nice walk today, Mark. Oh, it was lovely. Uh, it's a tremendous honour to be with Terry. I've, I've known him for a long time, as I mentioned during the course of the, the walk. Uh, he has a great feeling for the fells, very special to be able to indulge ourselves and just think about the environment and the world that he's been in over the last eight years. So it's been a good day. I think it was interesting you made the point that actually this whole process, these three films, has only taken within 10 years. And in that time, he's gone from losing his job and basically reinventing his career and also coming to live in Cumbria things have changed massively for him. Oh, it has indeed. And people have taken to him big time, people who love the mountain, people who love the communities, because he's put a lot of emphasis on that. And he's become a Cumbrian in many respects. It struck me the level of commitment that he was spending sometimes weeks on end on the high fells, particularly for the filming at Scarfell Pike, A Life of a Mountain, uh, in all kinds of terrible conditions, storm conditions, just to get the perfect shot. Yeah, and very often it'll only be a snapshot because the immense amount of footage he's created, the editing process, is that is staggering. I mean, to say the editing you have to do for these podcasts is, is minuscule by comparison. Is it, Mark? I see. I'll take your word for that. <laughs> now, some housekeeping. You can download any of our past podcasts either from the website www.countrystrides.co.uk or from itunes where they all are you can follow us and please do on social media we are at countrystride one on both facebook and twitter 
And our next episode, Mark, what have you got planned for us? Well, it's uh, it, it, winter might have arrived by then. <laughs> it, it feels like it's coming today right now. <laughs> yeah, well, it's coming next week and in a fortnight's time we'll be off. But we're staying low for that reason. We're going to Derwentwater and I'm going to speak to Dr. Chris Donaldson from University of Lancaster who will give us a perspective on the Romantic Age and I'll do a walk with Roy Henderson, the ranger, uh, for the National Trust in that valley. So we'll get two completely different perspectives, a very practical view and a very romantic, uh, literary view. I look forward to that a lot. So to close this episode, we're going to be played out with the theme tune to Terry's next film. I'll let Terry introduce it. Yeah, this is a, uh, a variation of the film's main motif by my longtime collaborator, Freddie, who's done the scores for the previous two Life of Mountain documentaries, and it's called A Distant Dawn. <laughs>